This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation-funded project hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion. I highly recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website, sacred-rights.org, that's W-R-I-T-E-S, or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore rights. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. I have countless historical blind spots regarding people and organizations and groups who have done amazing work to try to make the world better for all people. My own blind spots of overlooked histories inspire me because I realize how little I know of sacrifice and of selflessness, and it makes me want to do better with each remaining year of my life. An example of an overlooked history I explore on this episode is the story of the Young Lords. This conversation was an intriguing journey for me to explore an overlooked history of which I knew nothing, but learning about this street gang turned civil and human rights activist organization aimed at neighborhood empowerment and self-determination for Puerto Rico and colonized peoples of the world was a fantastic learning experience. My guest on this episode to discuss the history of the Young Lords is Dr. Jorge Juan Rodriguez V. Dr. Rodriguez is the son of two Puerto Rican migrants and was raised by his mother, father, grandmother, and uncle in a small affordable housing community outside of Hartford, Connecticut. He has degrees in biblical studies, social theory, and liberation theologies, and recently completed a PhD in history at Union Theological Seminary. In addition to his academic work, which explores the intersections of religion and progressive social movements, Jorge serves as the Associate Director for Strategic Programming at the Hispanic Summer Program, an organization that creates educational spaces focused on the academic study of religion and theology from a Latinx perspective. We discuss the Young Lords in great depth in the second half of our conversation, but we also spent some time discussing navigating the challenging paths within higher education in the beginning of our chat. You can find Dr. Rodriguez on Twitter at JJRODV or at his website JJRodriguezV.com. Please enjoy our conversation. Dr. Jorge Juan Rodriguez V, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to have you. I'm wondering if you can just start off a little bit by just telling the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do in the world. Sure. So um, I am a recent PhD grad. I just got my PhD from Union Theological Seminary back in May. Um, even though it was only a few months ago, it feels like eons ago because, <laughs> you know, ju- gestures at the world and time, yeah. time being relatively meaningless at this moment. Um, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, before the PhD, I grew up in, in uh, Connecticut, right outside of Hartford. Uh, my family migrated from Puerto Rico. Uh, and I grew up with my mom and dad and uncle and grandma in the small little affordable housing community um, outside of Hartford. Um, that is kind of like 
the centrality of where a lot of my story starts. Uh, and from that little, you know, community there in Connecticut, I went on to uh, to college to get a degree in biblical studies and then to union to study liberation theology and then uh, was accepted to the PhD program um, in the field of history. And then currently, um, I've been working with this organization for a few years alongside my PhD work called the Hispanic Summer Program. And we are an organization that was founded in 1989 uh, to provide classes for Latinx graduate students of religion and theology. Um, and since then, uh, we have expanded significantly and have year-round programming, including a public scholarship um, event every Wednesday, uh, have the first Wednesday of every month called the HSP Exchange, where we invite a different Latinx scholar from across the country to speak about their work and provide a space for people to talk to one another. Um, so yeah, we're called the Hispanic Summer Program, but we're doing things year round. So <laughs> it's a little confusing, but I love the work I do. I'm the associate director there um, and look over a lot of our programming, grant opportunities, et cetera. How long have you been with that organization? So I started working for them as a social media intern in 2015. Okay. Um, and then along the way, um, you know, different opportunities came up. I've been doing administration alongside my schooling since probably the second semester of my first year in undergrad. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had some skills along the way and I went from social media to event planning to grant writing. And uh, the reason we were able to expand so much in the last year is because we got $2 million, almost $2 million grant from the Lilly Endowment um, that I was grateful to be part of the team that was writing that. Um, so six years and a little more responsibility year by year until eventually coming alongside in a more permanent role. Wonderful. Um, I'm curious a little bit about your, your origin interest in religion in general. Uh, if you could take me back a little bit to how you came to be interested in biblical studies, like going into undergrad and what the origin of that story is like, what was that like going in and finding your way to the beginnings of your academic path? Um, they're mostly messy. Um, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's how most stories are. Um, but yeah, I mean, I grew up, I grew up in, in church. My, my family, my mom is a Baptist from Puerto Rico. My dad is Catholic. And later on, I found out that his family are also spiritists. Um, which when I found that out made a lot of sense in my life based on how my family <laughs> engages dreaming, engages concepts of death, engages the afterlife. Like it made a lot more sense that there was like a framework to talk about it with. Um, but, you know, as a result, faith, spirituality, religion was kind of part of the quotidian life of my growing up. Um, Around the time I was uh, 14 or so, we kind of switched from an American Baptist church, we were, which we were going to, to a Southern Baptist church that had a Puerto Rican uh, mission or a Spanish speaking mm. mission. Um, my mom really wanted to engage worship in Spanish. And um, that was my introduction into Southern Baptists and evangelicalism, which was um, complex in some ways. You know, I was a teenager and I had a lot of questions about um, evolution, you know, queerness, things sure. like that. 
And some questions were welcome and many were not uh, in a more conservative evangelical space. But, you know, still being connected to that community, I was like, well, you know, if the Bible is important, let me go figure out how to understand these things that I feel complex about um, relative to the Bible. Um, and I feel like there's two trajectories for Bible majors. It's like the ones that like super duper double down on their faith and the ones that like jump ship entirely. Mm. Um, and I was, <laughs> I'm still not entirely sure where I fell in that. Um, <laughs> but I think it was more towards the latter. Um, you know, when I went to study Bible, I, I was looking at, at various schools to study theology. I knew I wanted to study theology. I had some great mentors who continue to be deep influences in my life, um, who actually gave me the first introductions to liberation theology. So I had this one mentor particularly um, who, uh, you know, a, a Black woman from the American Baptist Church, a reverend, um, who had always been a deep influence in my life. And I remember when we switched over and I started to the Southern Baptist Church and I started asking questions about different things I was learning and everything. She actually gave me a, a bag of liberation theology texts. Mm. So it had Leonardo Boff, James Cone, um, you know, Gustavo Gutierrez, a whole bunch of things like that. And I remember being in the Southern Baptist Church reading uh, Leonardo Boff's um, and Clodovis Boff's systematic theology and having someone in the church come to me and tell me to be careful with what I'm reading. Mm. But those little snippets really, I think, started my, my journey to asking questions. And once I started studying biblical studies, um, I went to an evangelical college. I had no idea what evangelical colleges were. Um, I'm a first generation college student. And, you know, irrespective of that, if you didn't grow up in white evangelicalism your whole life, like, Christian colleges are a <laughs> distinct location. Yeah. Uh, but I went there, you know, I studied Bible. And I think pretty quickly I realized that any interpretation of the Bible was situated in your social context. Mm. Um, and that led me to study social theory. So I was looking at Marx. I was looking at uh, Durkheim, um, Bell Hooks, Angela Davis, looking at at that broader range of, of theoretical understandings to understand the context. And from there, you know, the jump to liberation theology, it was already fomented in high school or, or you know, founded in high school, whatever that word is. Um, but, I, you know, I took a deeper interest by the time I, I was a senior. And then, you know, liberation theology gave me a lot of language to talk about the things I was concerned about, um, which then led me a history of religion. Awesome. Um, and un understanding the context more of that social reality. Well, and I don't know if you're like me, but if somebody says, be careful about reading that, that's the only thing I'm going to read. <laughs> yes. You know? Yes, very much so. It drives me right into the arms of whatever that is. And it, I just, I, even if I don't agree with it, like I'm totally compelled to look deeply within it uh, just to see if that person had it right. And so that, yes. that's how I am. That's how I approached it as well with, with everything, with music, with movies, everything. I'm just like, oh, be careful with that. And I'm like, oh, give me more. Yes. No, I'm, I'm very similar. So when I do remember that when the person told me that I just kept reading the whole book. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. 
That's kind of how it? I got into it. What was it that led you to want to do the PhD? What, because like, you know, doing that is like a, a massive life decision that takes years and years of commitment. What made you pursue that path? Man, I wish I interpreted it as a massive life decision that requires <laughs> a lot of commitment before I entered the thing. Um, no, you know, um, when I was little, I remember being like three years old and saying like, one day I'll be Dr. Rodriguez. And yeah. I, to this day, don't know where that came from. You know, I do still lean on the faith tradition of my elders and, you know, believe that there's something there. But, um, you know, it was always something that, I wanted, and I, I didn't know what a PhD was, Mm -hmm. um, per se. I just knew that there was something about this higher learning that I think was going to be important for me and for my family. Um, and you know, how much of that is shaped by, you know, having the experience of migrants and like this narrative that education is going to be the way out, which the way out of like social ills, which I don't believe it is anymore, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it certainly doesn't hurt. Um, But it was something that I was always driven by. So I went straight from my undergrad, from high school to my undergrad, to my master's, to my PhD. Um, And it was kind of like, this is the trajectory I'm going. Um, It's unsurprising, you know, after finishing my PhD that, you know, there was a lot of therapy spent over the last few few months trying to figure (laughs) out like, okay, the majority of my life was geared towards this one goal. What happens now? Yeah. Um, and I found a lot of uh, resonance with other scholars who, you know, like me are younger when finishing the doctorate um, and, you know, are making that adjustment too about what does it mean to have a PhD? And uh, especially for someone like me, who I think early into my doctoral work, I realized that I, I, didn't think I was going to pursue a tenure track position. Mm -hmm. Um, So there have been a lot of questions about, well, is the PhD the best degree for this? And I still think it was valuable. I still think it's what I needed to do. Um, But yeah, it's a, your, your question is very complex and I don't think, I don't think I understood the gravitas of the program before I got in. What was it about union theological seminary as opposed to another place? Why that place? Yeah, so I applied for my master. My introduction to union was in my master's. Um, mm. At my senior year of college, I was studying liberation theology a little bit more intentionally, um, doing some independent studies that uh, in some circles of the college were not well received, as you can imagine, in an evangelical <laughs> school. So I, uh, you know, I applied uh, to Yale, Harvard, and Union um, and it was just this thing, aside from scholarships and stuff, it was this thing of Union, when I visited campus with my parents, Union gave us a, a room to stay, it gave my parents a room to stay, gave us Metro cards. Wow. Um, I, I got to meet James Cohn, I got to meet Cornell West, I got to meet Daisy Machado, who ended up being my advisor in the PhD program. And there was something about the place that was very imperfect and yet there's a synergy and an energy that happens at union that I find particularly moving um and so I decided to go to union for my master's and then when it was time to apply for a PhD um it was actually my advisor uh Dr. Daisy Machado who I was debating whether to pursue theology or to pursue American studies um and was running into um brick walls in both those things 
But there were two conversations that guided me particularly strongly. One was with my advisor, Dr. Daisy Machado, um, who kind of looked at me one day over dinner and said, um, you're a historian and you're lying to yourself applying to these theology programs. Mm. Um, why don't you just come study with me and be my last student? Um, so that was fairly compelling, but I still had the audacity to tell her I'd think about it. Mm. Um, <laughs> and the other person was uh, James Cohn, may he rest in peace, that uh, I had a conversation with him. I told him, you know, Dr. Cohn, I'm thinking about um, doctoral work. I don't know what to do if to apply to theology, but I'm kind of thinking history. And it was actually Dr. Cohn who said to me, you know, the the foundation of all theological inquiry is history. If you don't know where you've been, you can't really understand how the divine is or is not working. Um, so both those things kind of pushed me. So uni ended up being the only place I applied. Awesome. Wow. Yeah. But it just seems like it was meant to be then because you had those mentors that were built in that you already knew that you knew you could trust and rely on when things kind of went hard because it's it's a lifestyle. You know, I it was is. in a, I was in a PhD program for two years and I talk about it a lot on the show and how I stopped right before comprehensive exams because I knew that I was floundering and flailing within the system. And you know, it just wasn't for me. So I'm, I always love hearing people's stories about navigating through programs like that, because yeah. I think about my own time and the reasons I left and then the reasons why other people stay and the reasons why people land where they do and why it's a right fit or why isn't it. So I, I love these little like minutia details. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, if I may, if I may ask, did you feel empowered to leave when it was your time to, to make that decision? Well, you know, I was really fortunate because I had a teaching certificate in the state of Missouri where I was living at the time. And I was at the University of Missouri in the PhD program in education. And I applied for a position at a brand new high school and I was offered the job and I was floundering with like the uncertainty and the doubt of what I wanted to like specialize in and things like that within the program. And I just wasn't, my heart wasn't in it. So I was like doing publications yeah. and going to conferences and like my heart just wasn't in it. I'd be sitting in those conference chairs and I'd be like fantasizing about walking around San Francisco instead. Yeah. Um, and so I knew that it just wasn't right for me. So when I got that other opportunity, it was actually kind of an instantaneous decision of like, I'm going to go and I'm going to take this other job, which actually pays me a living wage and gives me insurance that I can live on. And I was expecting a child. So I just needed a little more stability in my life than yeah. the program could offer at that time. And it gave me objectives every single day instead of like this big amorphous changing thing that I couldn't get a grasp on because I was reading so widely and I was, I was interested in so many different things that I was just like, I don't really know if I really want to hone in on anything for like a couple of straight years. That's why I do a show like this where I can talk about anything, you yeah. know? So it was just like a, it, it was a decision where the people in the program, the PhD students in the program were very supportive. And they said, you should really go do that because that's a great opportunity and we're still your friends. So it's like totally cool. Um, so there was a, a different level of acceptance among the yeah. people who I was peers with who were like, yeah, you really should go do that. Cause they were like, they, they were like, we can read it on your face when you're not happy. <laughs> and cause I'm a fairly expressive person facially. And, uh, they, they just knew they could read it on my face that I really wanted to go and do that. So I did feel empowered. And I think that that's becoming a lot more common 
among people yeah. in PhD programs when somebody's like unhappy, like I feel like there is a that's a growing thing that's happening is counseling people out. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, I was actually about to say the same thing. I think that that's one of the one of the cool developments I've seen in the last uh, since I started the program. I mean, I think part of it's connected to the movement of unionizing doctoral uh, yeah. workers, um, where people feel more conscious of just the economic realities of a program, yeah. um, which, you know, the material conditions force them to make a condition, uh, a decision and an analysis of their own vocation. And I think that, you know, it's, it's an important conversation. So thank you for sharing. Oh, you're welcome. Um, you know, I do want to talk a little bit about your, your scholarship and interests as well. Um, I was listening to a podcast the other day featuring you on some work that you had done on a group called the Young Lords. Can we talk about this for a little while? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, my doctoral research uh, was on this organization called the Young Lords Organization, and particularly their New York City chapter. So, they're, um, the Young Lords are an organization that started uh, in the 1960s in Chicago, um, kind of moving from a Puerto Rican street gang to becoming politicized. Um, and really working to, you know, protect the Puerto Rican community in Chicago, the Latinx community, Mexican community, um, fighting against gentrification, fighting against um, other realities of poverty uh, within the context of the Vietnam War, the context of deindustrialization, which is basically, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, a bunch of factories left cities like Chicago and New York City and Newark. And basically what happened is that right as you have an influx of Puerto Rican uh, migrants and other migrants from other parts of the world and Black migrants from the Southern United States showing up in these cities, suddenly all these jobs are leaving. Mm -hmm. So you have this like chronic unemployment reality occurring in these cities um, precisely as young folks are coming back from war. Um, and, you know, of course, the other realities of like police brutality happening in these cities, um, you know, uprisings as a result. So in New York City in 1967, you have uh, uprisings against police brutality in East Harlem, and primarily Puerto Rican community. Um, you have the Watts riots in L.A. Like, you know, the U.S. is going through this like intense change uh, sociopolitically, economically. Um, and out of that groups like the Black Panthers um, who are much more familiar to people and in many regards, the vanguard of this like more left-wing uh, social movements um, who were interested in socialism, who were mm -hmm. interested in uh, you know, empowering uh, black and brown folk or third world peoples they talked about who are deeply internationalist, building ties in China, building ties in Puerto Rico, building ties even in Ireland, you know, bringing together some of the Irish resistance against British colonization um, and developing these international ties. So the Young Lords are very much coming out in the context of this uh, broader movement. Um, but I didn't focus so much on the group in Chicago. I focused on a chapter that was formed in New York City um, by a group of primarily Puerto Rican, also some African-American um, and more broadly Latinx, Cuban, uh, Mexican, et cetera, individuals, but primarily Puerto Rican um, who 
many of whom the founders were high school educated or college students, one of which was um, Juan Gonzalez, who is now, now runs Democracy Now. He's a very well-known figure. Yes. Yes. Um, a lot of people know, know Juan, really nice guy. Um, but, you know, he was in Colum- at Columbia University um, in 1968, leading some of the protests in, in Columbia University before then going on to join the Young Lords as the Minister of Education for the New York chapter. So you have this group coming together and really what they're trying to do is, I mean, in no uncertain terms, build a new society. Mm. But how how they pursue that is um, very locally and very individually. Um, Mm. They are influenced by the work of Franz Fanon who really wrote and talked a lot about internal colonization Mm -hmm. and needing to oppose anti-colonial movements, needing to also do the work of deconstruct the ways that colonialism still psychologically manifests within the colonized. Yeah. Um, And so, in their movement, you know, they were organized, they had um, a hierarchy that was, you know, somewhat based off the military, again, the context of Vietnam. And what they did was that they tried to build programs um, to serve the people. So they had breakfast programs for kids that they did with the Black Panthers. Um, They did clothing drives. They tried to organize shelters when possible for homeless folk. Um, They did a tuberculosis and lead poisoning testing. A lot of the laws that came out in New York City specifically that we still have today um, to test kids for lead poisoning and tuberculosis come out of the activism of the Young Lords. Um, And a lot of the healthcare movements that they did in the 60s that led to a patient bill of rights um, that's used widely stemmed out of the health activism of the young wards. Um, so they're doing, you know, all these things, these community-based groups, and they're also doing political education. So like they're bringing people in, um, 14, 15, 16 year olds, and sitting down in classrooms and reading Karl Marx and reading Fanon and, you know, that is one part of their work that I think isn't talked about enough, but I think is actually so vitally important um, because they aren't assuming that people are coming in with, you know, the understanding of these radical theories. Yeah. But they do assume people are coming in with a clear understanding of their, of the material conditions of their reality. And so they create spaces, education, they created educational spaces to try to you know, bring those things together. And in fact, to become a young Lord, you had to know these critical theories. You had to understand their 13 point agenda, which included um, things like calling for the freedom of of Puerto Rico, the independence of Puerto Rico, a socialist society, um, et cetera. You had to do all these things before even becoming a young Lord. Um, So I got into them because I was actually studying eugenics. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I, while studying eugenics, I started learning about the impact of eugenics in Puerto Rico and particularly the sterilization, mass sterilization of Puerto Rican women throughout the 20th century, Hmm. um, in part, in part connected to the eugenics movement, colonization, um, theories of overpopulation, which are, you know, are used to overshadow colonial conditions um, and the testing of the birth control pill on Puerto Rican women. So all these things happening. 
And in the US, the Puerto Rican diaspora rising up and speaking about the lack of, uh, of you know, birth control, but also the like murderous conditions of hospitals, especially for Puerto Rican women around questions of birth, around questions of sterilization. In that, I started connecting to the young lords. Um, and once I started learning about them, it really gave me language to talk about, in some ways, my story. Like, I was fascinated by what did it mean to be Puerto Rican, but in the U.S. diaspora, doing politics. Mm. Um, and being in New York City gave me a particular vantage point to talk about that. Could you, do you feel like you could like lead almost like a Manhattan walking tour of yeah. like young Lords sites, like in your city? Well, actually someone's already done that. So um, Wonderful. there's, there's this awesome artist. Um, it's funny. His name is escaping me, but I see his face in my head. He's a, a brilliant artist in East Harlem who teamed up uh, with the photographer of the young Lords, whose name is Hiram Maristani. And what he did was that he, he did this uh, walking tour called Mapping Resistance. And he took photos from the young lords from their different offensives. So like, you know, they took garbage and lit it on fire to bring attention to the fact that garbage wasn't being picked up in East Harlem. They'd stole a tuberculosis uh, and a tuberculosis testing truck to test people in East Harlem. They occupied a hospital. So they took photos, the artist took photos from this period, blew them up huge and put them physically in the place where that action occurred and then invited people with young lords to do a walking tour of, um, of that. I actually had the opportunity to do it with my mom and daddy. So I was starting my dissertation, uh, which was really moving for me because uh, I studied specifically their occupation of the first Spanish Methodist church on 111th Street and Lexington Avenue, which is right in the middle of East Harlem, this primarily Puerto Rican community in Manhattan. Um, and it was cool to do a walking tour with my parents and show them like, hey, this like abstract thing that like y'all don't know what the hell I'm talking about. It's yeah. that, like it's that physical red brick building. Yes. Yeah. I love stuff like that. Um, you know, I know that the the journey of a group like the Young Lords could not have been easy too. Like there must have been resistance. I was like looking at that they were targeted by like the FBI's Cointel Pro mm -hmm. programs and stuff like that. I'm wondering what kind of obstacles this group had to navigate um, throughout their story a little bit. Like I know there's probably tons, but like some that maybe some examples that maybe jump out in your mind. Yeah, you know when I was interviewing um, young lords, uh, the thing that really came out came up for them in terms of when their organization started fizzling. So they were the New York City Young Lords organization later turned Young Lords Party. Um, they kind of, they formed in 1969 in July. And by the mid 1970s, um, the organization kind of fractured. Um, they became a new organization called the Puerto Rican Revolutionary Workers Organization um, that had a more staunch labor perspective, mm -hmm. uh, very ideologically driven. But you see some of that starting in the 1970s. And there's uh, there was a debate going on about whether or not 
the young lords who were at that point expanding to different chapters across the eastern seaboard. So they had a chapter in Hartford, Connecticut, Philadelphia, Newark, New Jersey. There was a question about whether or not they should also go to Puerto Rico. And the question was basically like, we are a primarily Puerto Rican organization calling for the independence of Puerto Rico. Should we not be organizing Puerto Rico? Mm. And that particular debate and the eventual founding of chapters in Puerto Rico is what many young lords themselves cite as like the breaking point for the organization. And it's for a lot of reasons. I think some of it was um, the organization overextended itself by going to Puerto Rico. Part of it was that the Puerto Rican social movements, particularly leftist social movements, didn't know how to engage a group from the diaspora. And that caused a lot of tension culturally, linguistically, et cetera. Because um, you think about it, you know, many of these uh, groups who grew up, many of these youth who grew up in New York City, some of them didn't speak Spanish, or if they did, it was, you know, uh, Spanish mixed with uh, English, Spanglish type of thing. They had a cultural understanding of New York City, which is very different from a rural mountainous understanding of Puerto Rico. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's a very different context. Um, and so that caused tensions. But I think the other piece that is the one um, we might not n- ever know, or will only know in pieces, is, you know, the FBI infiltration of the Young Lords. Um, and you see by the night by 1971, 1972, clear, um, clear divisions within the organization. Uh, and one wonders how many informants or of Cointel Pro of the FBI were infiltrating the organization because you see the same pattern with the Black Panthers and with other leftist groups um, in the period. You know, I was, I was thinking, I don't know if you've seen or, or some people, some of your listeners have seen uh, the movie Judas and the Black Messiah, mm. um, which the movie dip is essentially a biopic of uh, Fred Hampton, uh, who was perhaps the most famous leader of the Black Panther Party yeah. um, in, in Illinois. Um, but it was really about this other character whose name is escaping me who was essentially became an informant for the FBI. And the movie has been critiqued, I think, um, rightfully so in some regards for uh, under-emphasizing the two true radical ideas that Fred Hampton and other Black Panther members had, um, which of course, you know, in any motion picture, there'll be a watering down at some level. But I think the one thing the movie did well was really show um, or at least raise awareness of the fact that in this period, the U.S. government went out of their way to infiltrate these radical groups. And this is the context of the Cold War, right? Like, um, you know, the U.S. is hella worried about the spread of communism, not only in, uh, in Russia, but also in Cuba. So you have these internationalist groups who are building coalition with one another, some of whom are from the Caribbean, some of whom have ties to Cuba. And of course the US is gonna be hella concerned within the context of the Cold War. So the question of the FBI informants um, affecting the challenges faced of the organization is really pressing for me. And one that um, Joanna Fernandez, a, a scholar of the Young Lords and Daryl Wanzer Serrano, they talk about. Um, 
but will be difficult to know until in in full unless some things are declassified. Yeah. Are you doing any additional writing on this? Like, are you thinking about any book projects or anything like that in the future? Where do you go from here with the scholarship that you've accumulated throughout this PhD program? Yeah. So um, my actual PhD was actually, my actual dissertation focused on this one takeover in 1969 in East Harlem. It was a takeover of the first Spanish Methodist church, like I mentioned. Um, and my dissertation and my research is really actually about religion. So I kind of see my work at the intersections of religion and social movements um, stemming particularly from an angle of history and Latinx studies. And part of what I do in my work is um, tell the story of the takeover in 1969, where basically the young lords go to this church and it's a primarily Puerto Rican church. Um, a historic Puerto Rican church, and they ask for space to um, host a free breakfast program for kids. Mm -hmm. um, and the church basically denies their requests. And so the Lords then move to asking the parishioners um, and going to church Sunday after Sunday to try to ask for space. Um, and the church board, and particularly the pastor, who was a, a Cuban who uh, left Cuba after the revolution of 1959, um, you know, they keep saying no, and they keep saying, you know, there are ideological differences, and it's the right of the church to decide what programs it does or doesn't have. Long story short, um, things go south. <laughs> um, in, Decem in December of 1969, things escalate when the young lords try to petition the church. Um, plain clothes officers, um, essentially beat and arrest young lords, leaving some with lacerations and broken bones. Um, things further escalate until on December 28th, 1969, the young lords actually occupy the church uh, for 11 days. And during those 11 days, they establish uh, breakfast programs for kids, uh, clothing drive, uh, medical clinic, um, like thousands of people go. It's like a huge thing. It gets national attention. Um, churches all across the country are talking about it, some in celebration of the young lords who argued that this was the work of Jesus uh, to take care of the least of these, some of whom are terrified that their church is going to be next to be occupied. Mm. Um, and so my research looks at that occupation in two angles. First is that I actually tell the occupation first from the vantage point of the church. So I trace the history of the church that was founded in 1922. And it's a primarily Puerto Rican church that was like over 50 years, almost 50 years before encountering the young lords. They were trying to establish themselves in the Methodist denomination, but also in New York City as um, migrants who were moving around and facing discrimination constantly. And actually before they encountered the lords, you know, part of their negotiation with the city was they had social programming, they had um, food drives, as well as more conservative evangelical, uh, I'm using evangelical very loosely there, um, you know, things of prayer circles and ladies ministries and things like that. They do become more conservative um, by the late 1960s in part because they've fought for years to get a church building. They eventually get it, um, in the 1960s after fighting with the Methodist denomination that 
has no idea what the hell to do with Spanish-speaking Puerto Ricans. Um, and right as they get their church, their church burns down. Mm. And it burns down uh, in a fire that then forces them to rebuild. And right when it's rebuilt with new facilities, um, with you know big spaces, that's when the young lords ask them um, if they could use the space. And the young lords are asking them, right? Because it's like a new space with a lot of cool things that would be great for the community. But the, from the church's perspective, they're kind of like, look, we fought for years against like all this racism, against all this like discrimination, against all this like class prejudice to get here. Like, I don't know how that we're gonna be able to do this. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a more complex story and it's particularly complex in part because some of the members of the church were the literal grandparents and aunts and uncles of the young lords themselves. So part of my work and where I'm going with it is I have an article coming out in a, a new book on Latinx religious politics that's coming out of NYU Press, an edited volume, um, and also doing a little bit more writing um, in general on this. I'll be giving a, the Hispanic Heritage Month talk for the Department of Social Services in Connecticut um, in a few weeks where I'll be talking about this and really revolving around the question of like, what happens when you occupy your grandmother's church mm. and what are what are questions of um, engaging intergenerational struggles around politics when the context of the young lords birthed in war, birthed in diaspora, birthed in uprising, birthed in police brutality is connected to yet distinct from the elders in their community who really, you know, pushed and tried to seek the American dream. And so part of what I'm asking is like, The young lords were born in the context of Malcolm talking about the American nightmare. It's a distinct reality. So how do we talk about intergenerational struggle and social movements within the context of religion uh, based on this story? So, yeah, well, you know, this is a topic that I think is incredibly overlooked. Like you mentioned earlier, like the Black Panthers are so well known. But to me, um, I don't recall ever learning about the Young Lords whenever I was in school growing up in St. Louis in the Midwest. Like this is a a storyline of the United States and that I was entirely unaware of, essentially. Um, so so clearly to me, your work has a deep uh, public importance in the fact that, you know, if you can sit here with somebody like me, like, I feel like I am a curious person who has read a lot about the world and tries to understand new things and wants to understand like the life stories of people all over the world. But this is a story that completely escaped me. So I feel like you have a, a really fascinating task of, you know, kind of getting this story out there. And I know that you're collaborating with Sacred Rights a lot right now to like, you know, learn how to get this work into a lot of different um, like publications and other opportunities of public scholarship. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about uh, maybe your plans for like, you know, engaging in this content in the coming years to get the story out to people like me who had previously never heard about it. Yeah, no, I appreciate that question. You know, Sacred Rights has been great um, because it's really helped me see and think more critically about different um, mediums of public scholarship. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of times, um, I think a lot of times one of the things that you can really gift someone is time to sit and reflect. 
Yeah. And I think that sacred rights has has provided that time to sit and reflect on what does it mean to be a scholar um, who wants to do more public facing work. Um, you know, I still have relationships with the church itself, the church I was occupied, and I'm hoping to be working with them next year, um, pending a few things to maybe do some popular pieces around this history for the church. The church actually now is led, that was occupied, is actually led um, by this brilliant named Dorimal uh, Lebron Malave, who is really, she's rebranded the church as FSUMC, First Spanish United Methodist Church, the People's Church. And so she's really trying to reclaim both the history of the Young Lords and of the, the church itself. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping to do some of that, but honestly, I, I just want to kind of keep doing these types of, especially podcasts, these types of, uh, you know, conversations, because there's something about the affect yeah. of the story that I think comes out in audio better than it does in person mm-hmm. or better than it does in writing um, in some instances. And there's something about, I'm excited to, to speak in two weeks uh, to some social workers in Connecticut about this story and really tie it to, because you know, the Department of Social Work and in, in Social Services in New York City is central to the story, um, really tied some of that because I, I don't know. There's something about seeing people be like, shit, I've never heard of this. Yeah. And I think that I should because it's important to my community. It's important to the history of the nation, but also because it's important to understanding minoritized communities and the ways religion functions in complex and messy ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I see it immediately applicable and hope to hope to continue doing this in multiple avenues. Well, another thing I think that a lot of people don't understand is the re- the relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico. Like a lot of people couldn't really explain what the connection between these two places is. And yeah. so I think that that is another little link between telling this story and understanding the connection of this continent and the island itself. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I'm wondering if you can tell people where they can find you and follow your work if they want to follow along in the coming years and uh, see where you go with all of this. Sure. So, um, you know, the social media platform I'm most active on is Twitter. Um, and my handle is at JJRODV. So JJRODV is pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, but the other place that has my information is my website, um, www.jjrodriguezv.com. And it's actually, um, in the coming weeks, uh, I'm going to launch the new website um, that I've had the great people, and I'll put a plug for them, um, this organization called the Femme Collective, um, who a friend of ours started, um, that seeks to empower women around the world to do this type of marketing, web development, and web design. So they've been incredible to work with for redesigning my website. Um, and I'm excited to show the the new things that are coming out there. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Rodriguez, I am absolutely thrilled to welcome you on Classical Ideas to hear your life story and the story of the work that you do and how those two things are so interconnected. You know what I mean? Yes. There's so much life story that you have woven throughout your work as well, which is truly inspirational to me because, um, you know, I just feel like you're, you've got this like really rich, uh, 
line of work going that you are just incredibly engrossed in. And I just love what you're doing. And I'm so excited that you were here. So thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas to chat with me about everything that you do, because I just love learning with you today. Thanks for having me. The pleasure is mine.